Welcome to The Activist Files, the Center for Constitutional Rights podcast, where we feature the stories of activists, lawyers, and storytellers on the front lines fighting for justice and liberation. If you want to know more about the Center for Constitutional Rights and our work, visit our website at ccrjustice.org. You can sign up for our weekly newsletter, Frontlines of Justice, and we'll keep you up to date on important developments and exciting events near you or online. You can also make a donation to help us keep doing the vital work of supporting our partners, movements, and communities. As always, don't forget to subscribe to The Activist Files and rate us on iTunes, Spotify, and SoundCloud. And now, here's The Activist Files podcast. And welcome to the Activist Files. I'm Leah Todd, legal worker at the Center for Constitutional Rights, and I'm joined by two illustrious members of the CCR family for our podcast today. With us today, we have uh, Brittany Wilson, the Associate Professor of Law and Director of the Civil Rights and Disability Justice Clinic at New York Law School. Brittany is also a poet and writer. Um, and we're also joined by Lucy Trishman, who's a third-year law student at NYU Law School, co-founder of the Breaking Point Project and treasurer of the National Disabled Law Students Association. Um, I'm so excited to have them both today. And, you know, as CCR family members, uh, Brittany is a former Bertha Justice Fellow and Lucy is a former Ella Baker Summer Intern. So it's so great to have you both in conversation as, uh, you know, key people we've just benefited so much from your learning and brilliance and excited to do more of that today. So welcome. Thank you so much to both of you for being here. Hi, thank you for having us. Yeah, thanks for having us. Excellent. Well, yeah, to start off again, thank you for being here. Um, you know, we're speaking uh, today uh, about looking at uh, how, how art and storytelling uh, work to promote kind of disability justice work. And first off, I'd love to hear from both of you, you know, ways that you might have used art and storytelling um, in your work to do disability justice and other liberation work, because I know you work in many areas and, you know, how you find doing that, uh, using using art to be kind of an effective way to do this advocacy work. Yeah, sure. I mean, I don't know that I ever deliberately set out to use art as part of my quote unquote social justice work. I was just sort of a writer first. It was something that I've loved to do since I was a child. You know, I love to write stories. Um, I also sing. Um, so I just, it was a way for me to express myself, to talk about my experiences. And then I sort of, when I got a little bit older, stumbled into the world of spoken word poetry. Back in the day, I was on a show called Brave New Voices on HBO, which chronicled the experience of my SLAM team. I, I was part of an organization called Urban Word NYC and my um, I made the SLAM team, which went to the International Youth Spoken Word Competition, which is also called Brave New Voices. And um, that became a whole thing. But I, I, I got into performing my poetry completely accidentally because I'm also a basketball fan. <laughs> and one day I was watching a Nick game and they were like, hey, do you have poems? what come down to the next poetry slam and I was like oh yeah I got poems like and I just kept them in a folder in my room at the time and I went to the slam because it seemed interesting and that's how I accidentally entered the world of spoken word um and it just so happened that a lot of my poems 
were about my experience as a disabled person. Um, and it became a way for me to connect with people. I sort of saw the value of not just keeping the poems in a folder in my room. I was like, oh, wow, there's a stage and people listen to you and you get reactions. And sometimes people want to talk to you afterwards about your experiences. So sort of um, learned the value of connecting with people through words. And then I think lawyers are inherently storytellers. And so even though I sort of wasn't deliberately trying to connect those things, I, I found that that side of me was very beneficial to my advocacy in general because you can sort of make complex issues and complicated issues relatable and translatable to everyone that way. So, and I know Lucy, you um, you have a, a pretty robust project that uses art as a way to kind of center the experiences of people in prison uh, with disabilities. So, I would love to hear kind of how you have done that work and also how you bring it into, you know, the work you do as, as a law student and advocate. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, similar to Brittany, art has always been a really big part of my life, particularly in the form of music. I've played music since I was a child. It's something that my whole family does. And it was a form of expression that was safe and comfortable for me in times where expressing my emotions wasn't necessarily safe or comfortable. So it's always been a constant for me. And I was actually in the marching band in college, played the tuba for 10 years. And then I acquired my disability when I was 21 and wasn't able to play anymore. And kind of felt a, a big gap in my life for a little while when I lost that outlet that I had had for so long and then slowly figured out other ways of expressing the same thing. And when I had the opportunity at NYU to start a project with a friend of mine on pretty much anything we wanted, uh, we decided to put together a project um, at the intersection of disability justice and abolition that involved art. So a friend and I started the Breaking Point Project as two disabled women who are committed to abolition and trying to figure out, you know, how to uplift and center the voices of folks actually impacted as opposed to the way the law frames it. Um, we thought that art would be a really important way to make that happen. So we interview incarcerated disabled folks, however they identify disabled, having chronic health condition, mad neurodivergent, any of the above. Um, we interview them and together with them condense that down into a shorter narrative and then share with their permission that narrative with a disabled, mad, chronically ill neurodivergent artist um, who then brings that to life through visual art. And we publish them alongside each other on our website, thebreakingpointproject.com. And it's been a really powerful process even, like just the act of being in community with other disabled folks from all of these varied backgrounds and coming together to put together something that we all hope has this larger impact, but at the same time, the process of the creation of art is part of the magic of it. So we've been publishing those as part of a larger argument for abolition, but also as a way of deconstructing this hierarchy of power that we have in the law between those who like quote unquote know the law and those who are impacted by it and trying to collapse that to the extent that's possible, which you know, 
fully collapsing it would never be, but that's the goal. And also trying to get people to understand something that they might not otherwise expose themselves to. So I use the example of my mom, like she doesn't love to talk about really challenging, tough things. You know, it really gets, she's very empathetic and it really hurts her heart. But when she, so she would never read one of the narratives necessarily, like that would be really hard for her, but she sees the art and that sparks the conversation instead. So trying to give people multiple ways of accessing something that they might not otherwise be exposed to so that we can move towards collective liberation through art. I really love that. And it was interesting to hear you both kind of talk about the ways that art and storytelling kind of demystify law or like make make law accessible as well as, well as like these stories and, and important kind of narratives. Yeah. And I'd, I'd love to hear kind of a little more of your thinking about that. I'm, I'm somebody who's also a big believer in the way that law kind of creates obstacles and barriers and, and that like our work needs to be to deconstruct them. Um, you know, and I know so much of this access means so many things in the context of this conversation. So yeah, would love to hear a little bit more about your thinking about how you do that. And, you know, in the case of you, Brittany, I know that you're doing a lot of work with your clinic um, on these issues. And I imagine storytelling is a big part of that. So yeah, just love to hear a little bit more about that from you both. The clinic is a little bit different because, um, you know, I'm very newly a law professor making the the transition to, to academia. Um, and I can talk a little bit about why I did that if you're <laughs> at all interested. But I think for for the purposes of the clinic, obviously my my goal is to teach law students how to become lawyers and and advocates more broadly and to expose them to to the concept of disability justice, which is not something that I got in law school at all, ironically, despite my very personal reasons for going to law school. So I don't think that storytelling in the way that we're talking about it right now is necessarily um, what I'm doing with them at this point, because we're sort of working on more traditional development of legal skills, but I definitely stress the point to them that you have to be able to communicate, go from your meeting to your brief, to your you know interview with the reporter, to talking to your clients and community members and sort of the different forms of communication and different ways of understanding and breaking down issues. So I don't know that Art specifically in the way that we're talking about has come into play in that way, but I've definitely sort of talked about the different forms of communication and their value. I think on the art side, an interesting thing that I would add, I wrote an essay a few years ago about an experience that I had on Accessoride, which is New York City's paratransit service. And I chose to write that essay largely because something really horrible happened to me on Accessoride and I knew sort of the limitations of the law in, in, in dealing with that. I knew that like, if I were to pursue um, that incident legally, not much would come of it. And, and, and it, it would take a lot of energy and resources. And it also wouldn't tell the story that I wanted told um, or, or get at the issues that I wanted to get at in the way that I wanted to get at them. I hope this is not like too abstract, but I was just like the damages or whatever I could potentially get from this legally would not accomplish the larger goals that I wanted to accomplish by actually telling the story of what happened and the apparatus that is accessoride and paratransit in a more nuanced way. So that was actually a strategic decision on my part to like, I'm gonna write about this instead 
And I hope that the writing will illuminate more than me doing any X, Y, Z legal thing or advocacy thing, quote unquote, traditional advocacy thing ever could, um, because it allowed me to talk about how Accessoride illustrates disability, race, class, gender issues intersectionally all in one space. And I could never do that in say a lawsuit, unfortunately. Thank you for that. That's so like so powerful to kind of break down in here. Um, and yeah, you know, Lucy, I, I heard you kind of talking about and you know, I've heard you before I have the benefit of having spoken to you before. Um, talk about, you know, your project not only as a means of of like sharing stories, talking about disability justice, but like pushing an abolition narrative. I know that you both work uh, really, you know, like Brittany, you were just saying in, in these intersections of, you know, you can't really separate out disability justice from racial justice, gender justice, like all of these uh, kind of liberation uh, projects, movements. Um, and, you know, I, I know that I know that that's kind of a, a, a goal in your work, Lucy. So I'd, I'd love to hear kind of how you've been able to like, maybe even demystify abolition or, you know, the, the point and goals of that by, by, you know, telling these stories. Yeah, absolutely. I think I, I realized the influence that storytelling, you know, using an expansive definition of storytelling, be that through visual art or spoken word or, you know, any music, any of the mediums. I realized the role that it could play in helping people access something they might not otherwise. Most acutely when I was home, in Virginia with my family for the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, I spent about five months with my family, which I haven't done since before I was 18. And they have very different political views than I do um, and have had very different ex lived experiences than me. We come from, you know, we come at topics that are in the news from very different angles. And something that my family and I were able to find common footing on that summer in the wake of George Floyd's murder and Breonna Taylor and everything that happened was the stories. That was something that we could actually connect on. And so that experience, like those conversations were happening in the months leading up to when this project began. And I had already figured out, thankfully, that I wanted to take disability justice in the direction of decarceration and abolition with my career. And it seemed like everything was kind of leading me towards what has now become the Breaking Point Project. Um, and I think speaking to what Brittany was saying at the beginning about how she's handling her clinic, like that's a big part of the reason that my friend and I, Maya Goldman pursued this is because we weren't getting the education that we needed in the classroom. I was coming out of my first year of law school feeling so like more distant than ever from the reason that I came. And I came because of people and I came because of what had happened to me and because I never wanted that to happen to anybody else ever again. And I had never felt so distant from that goal as I did at the end of my first year of law school. And so then living at home and going through, you know, all of that and the pandemic and then coming into my second year of law school, I was desperate for some artistic outlet. And I felt so distant from myself. And this project has really helped me reground myself in what I know my values are because I come from a public health background, a public health and anthropology background. I was going to 
get a PhD in anthropology and, you know, be an academic and do that for the rest of my life. And then I became disabled and people started treating me like shit. And I realized I had to go to law school, you know, because nobody else was going to. So like, that's how we all ended up where we are. And the whole, the thread of my career and my lived experiences so far has definitely been storytelling and this disconnect between what the law, what I believe the law ought to be and what it actually is in practice and most poignantly what my classmates seem to think it should be uh, has been a challenge recently. So that's kind of how we how we came to this project and the timeliness of you know the abolition movement gaining a lot of uh, momentum in the wake of that summer, I think helped push the project along as well. We were able to um, win some grant money to keep it going and we compensate everybody, which was really important to us from the beginning, the storytellers and the artists and everybody. And we're applying for further grant funding right now to expand the project with a short-term goal being putting together a vagina monologues style presentation uh, performance when that becomes safe or doing it over Zoom that would be people telling their stories on stage. And that would be something really powerful, I think, to further both like legal and social narratives about incarceration and people who are incarcerated in particular and these misconceptions that people seem to carry about criminal justice, which isn't really justice. Thank you so much for that. And, uh, you know, as, as somebody who's also, you know, worked in this sphere, Brittany, I certainly want to invite you to speak about, it. I know you have a, a long history of work in uh, racial justice and, and challenging the criminal legal system and its consequences. Um, and I know this, this conversation around, you know, how as a society, uh, you know, the way we deal with access issues and meeting needs is to throw people in prison very often. Um, you know, so I know that you both are doing really incredible work on this. So definitely want to invite you to uh, speak to that. And I, you know, I also just to throw a couple, couple questions into the mix. You know, I also appreciate that the question of pandemic came up a couple times. And I, you know, I think so many really important thinkers and people that I respect have uh, really raised the fact. And I, I've heard uh, from this from you both too, I think that, you know, the pandemic has been a moment when issues of access have really come to the fore and been a conversation. It's been a moment where, um, you know, I think disability justice activists and advocates have like rightfully chastised, you know, all sorts of systems and institutions for not providing the kind of tools that they were clearly always able to provide, um, when, you know, whether that be technology, whether that be, you know, more flexibility around certain kind of structures that that the answer was no so often until this moment where once everyone is impacted you know those solutions were found so i've really appreciated uh that you know this has been like a moment of learning it's i, I do fear that it's it's a learning that people are trying to move away from right now um so yeah so i'd love to you know invite you both to speak further about this kind of work around incarceration but also speak to what it has meant to like live through a moment where access has really been a larger conversation and kind of how that's uh, impacted you? Um, yeah, I mean, nothing forces you to talk about the intersection of race and disability, like living through 
a literal pandemic where people are are dying, people are getting sick, and disproportionately people of color, right? Um, so I think on the one hand, it this has been horrible, of course, but it's also been like, um, this is what we've been telling you for ages, for decades. Like now are you are you paying attention now? And like you said, things that we've been fighting for 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 decades, we've we now see has been possible all along you know, accommodations, flexibility, um, remote work, remote education. But, you know, I want to acknowledge is not what every every disabled person needs. There, there are different disabilities, different people have different needs um, and, you know, different, different levels of access to technology, which is itself an issue. But for many people, these options and these this, this flexibility has been so helpful and what, what we've always needed. Um, you know, as as someone with a with a mobility impairment myself, just the 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 option to not have to take paratransit every single day for for eighteen months um, was huge. I know that just the doors that it opened for people who had issues getting employment. You know, employment is a huge issue for people with disabilities, and a huge part of that is lack of reliable transportation. So when you sort of take out that 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 middleman, the doors that it should open, which ironically, it seems like it hasn't, or which, uh, you know, ableism, I'm sure is the reason for that. We can have a whole conversation about that. But the doors that, that it could open and then that it should open um, because of these new, new ways that we found for navigating our lives. But like you said, unfortunately, the rhetoric now is about quote unquote, going back to, to normal, uh, which normal was always ableist and always problematic. So I worry that the lessons that we should have learned, we didn't really learn, and we sort of just did what we had to do for the moment. But I do hope that we're not going back to what we were, because not even just, not even just employment in school, but like things like concerts and people being able to have social lives, you know, like watching Instagram live concerts and having a sort of immediate access to that sort of entertainment all these things are things that should have been accessible in the first place and that we don't just want to go back to quote unquote ableist normal. Yeah, I would definitely say I have similar feelings about the move back to how things were before um, because that is quite literally what's happening. Everybody is trying to go to exactly how things were before all of this happened as if we didn't learn any of the lessons that Brittany was just talking about. And I have mostly been working on these issues in the context of access to the classroom. And it has been truly terrible, uh, to be completely frank, like how dehumanizing and how belittling and just profoundly, deeply ableist in ways that people like could not have conceptualized. I had uh, the dean of our law school, Trevor Morrison, actually yelled at me in a meeting. He told me that I was being disrespectful, um, that I wasn't being, uh, you know, a respectful of all of the effort that went into the remote learning environment when I told him what Brittany was saying at the beginning about how it's been really challenging for disabled students to see suddenly all of these things that we've needed all along and asked for become available as soon as non-disabled students needed it. Um, and I was told I was being unreasonable for being upset about that. And that's been really challenging. 
And now that we are mostly in person at NYU and a lot of law schools are mostly in person, I didn't find out until two days before the beginning of the semester that I would be able to attend class remotely. Um, I have, <laughs> I'm immunocompromised and they wanted me to go into a classroom with a hundred of my peers uh, in the middle of a pandemic that could quite literally kill me and thought that was reasonable and had to fight. And honestly, you know, bring in some of the legal education they give me, they gave me in order to get what we needed. And so thankfully I have been able to attend remotely, but I've been doing a lot of advocacy with students at other schools and it's just not been the case. And these institutions think they can tell us what we need and what will work for us when that's never been the case and it never will be the case that anybody will have a better idea of what I need in terms of my disability and access than I do. So that has been a really disappointing and you know bittersweet aspect of the move back to things were before. And I would hope that people will actually learn these lessons. And I do think that some people have, but it's exhausting to always be someone else's education point. You know, for my lived experiences and the things that happened to me to always serve to educate somebody else rather than them just be as they are, which is obviously like, you know, very different for me as a white woman than it is for BIPOC folks. And it's just been, a, this whole thing has been so dehumanizing and I am so excited to graduate and start actually working on these issues and fixing them from the ground up instead of just having these systems beat people down over and over again. I can't promise you it changes, unfortunately, on the other side, but I feel you. Yeah, I'm so sorry that that continues to be such an unnecessary struggle. Um, and kind of on this point, uh, which you just you just kind of spoke about being tired of being the kind of means of education and yet uh, are so often asked of it. Uh, so appreciation for being here and, you know, educating all, uh, all of our listeners and myself. But, you know, I think about, I feel like I've mentioned to both of you before my like deep love of Mia Mingus, who is just one of many brilliant um, advocates and, and like educators and thinkers. But, you know, I really personally uh, learned so much from the way that she, had, like, particularly hearing it from her, I know this is a conversation others have, but the kind of reframing of you know, we, I think there's often conversations around like, oh, ADA compliance. And that's, that's all we, that's, that's the blind we need to meet. Um, and, and she really speaks about uh, interdependence moving from like, moving to like access and interdependence and understanding that like, away from this concept of like self-reliance and independence and like the understanding the reality that like, if we really recognized that everyone has needs and nobody can operate without the like support of other people, um, you know, we could do much better um, around uh, meeting, you know, uh, achieving disability justice. So, you know, moving from this like idea that anyone can be truly independent, which is such like a false idea and really just uh, an ableist idea and just, you know, thinking about access as just one form of being interdependent um, and, and achieving these things. I'm just really thinking about that a lot in this conversation. So uh, thank you. But yeah, I don't know. I don't know if that's been kind of a way that you frame your work or something that's been useful for you as a concept? I mean, yeah, definitely. Um, I'm really glad you brought up Mia because, you know, I have my students reading Mia and I think we've been having this whole conversation 
about disability justice, we didn't really define what it is. And I think that it has become one of those quote unquote trendy buzzwords that people use sort of like intersectionality and when they when they don't actually know what it means, but they're using it because they, they have a sense that it's better than maybe another word. And so I wanna say like, you know, I run this civil rights and disability justice clinic and that, that word choice was intentional, but I also wanna acknowledge the irony of that word choice because I'm a law professor, right? And I'm training students to be lawyers and disability justice is not disability rights. So inherently I'm doing disability rights work because I'm working within the framework of the law and training people to be lawyers and disability justice is broader than that. Um, it has principles, it has 10 principles. Um, it, it openly recognizes sort of the limit, the limitations of disability rights as a framework, as, as an mostly access-based framework. And that's a lot of what Mia's work focuses on the disability rights talks about access it talks about laws it talks about it's, it's it's sort of based in the equality framework which which doesn't work and has never worked for people with disabilities um like you said this notion of self-reliance and independence and all we need is access and if you give us access it's all good um where disability justice again focuses on um the intersections it focuses on the experiences particularly of people of color with disabilities, queer people with disabilities. It focuses on cross-disability solidarity, different types of disabilities, not just what you can get from a lawsuit or rights or things like that, but how we get free um, collectively and on a more broad basis than that. So I think while using the law as a vehicle because I'm training law students and while disability rights is important, um, my goal is to teach people that the goal is freedom and the goal is justice more broadly, um, which is why I chose the clinic name that I did and I, tr and I try to do disability justice work, um, even, even while coming from a disability rights jumping off point just by virtue of being a lawyer. Um, so I just wanted to put that out there. Yeah, I have similar qualms about, you know, this newfound adoption of the term disability justice. Um, so I'm glad that you like outlined all of that. And uh, I, this moving away from self-reliance, I think is exactly what the disability community and the disability justice movement has to offer other liberation movements, because this is what we've done all along. You know, like our community has always been interdependent and we've always recognized the um, value of relying on others and not convincing yourself that you have to be isolated and independent in whatever that means. And this like redefinition and radical reimagining of what it means to be a person in the world. And I think that's also underlies, you know, commitments to abolition. And I don't think it's possible to be abolitionist if you're not also committed to disability justice and racial justice and queer justice and all of these things, because this is the, that's the starting point. The starting point is these justice principles and values. And I think that's missing from a lot of how white quote unquote activists approach the work, particularly white non-disabled, um, non-otherwise marginalized in any way activists, you know, if it's how they label themselves. And so they end up doing a lot more harm than they actually, do good 
And the, you know, shitty part about it is that they're the ones with the most influence and power. And then it falls to the marginalized folks to pick up the pieces of this like patchwork framework that people are trying to propose. So that is something that I hope starts to gain more traction and that people start to, you know, give credence to from the disability community about what it means to be a person in a community in a truly interdependent society, non-hierarchical society that like we've been modeling a lot of those principles for years out of necessity and out of desire because I think, you know, we understand that no person can do all things by themselves. And even if they can, sometimes it's better if you if you don't. And that's something that we've lived and practiced. Um, and I hope that that's the direction that these larger liberation movements uh, start to move in. Thank you so much for all of that. And I really appreciate kind of you both sort of ending on like hopes. And yeah, I'd love to hear as we sort of move towards closing out, you know, what are your freedom dreams look like? And like, what's kind of the next thing you'd like to see to get there? Like what's what's kind of like a basic first step that maybe we we probably should have already done, but like we really absolutely could do to get there um, and kind of, you know, what, do, what would you like to see 800 steps on the line? Um, that's a really hard question. I don't know, I've been thinking a lot lately about how hard it is for me to actually imagine like certain futures like that's that sounds horrible like even for myself like I I don't really know like I I I really struggle to imagine certain things for myself and I think I blame ableism like I'm just like can I really do that is that a thing um I don't know uh what do I want to see so many things I, I really just want to see us all free I know that sounds super cliche but I'm I'm tired of having like the same conversations and then it feels like you think that there's some understanding of a concept and then there seem to be more people on board and then it sort of becomes like a big commercialized thing I think we saw a lot of that in the wake of, of George Floyd you know it's all these conversations everybody's buying these racial justice books and there are all these you know and, and then it's like well, then we get some statues and then it's like oh but what do we like what do we actually just do so I'm kind of just tired of that whole thing constantly and I want us to just really talk about how we um deconstruct these barriers <laughs> that are that are keeping us all um locked in and in different respective ways but I don't know that we're we're really ready for that I don't know when we will be so I don't that was that was a horrible answer but I I'm struggling with imagining right it's, now it's a true answer and like appreciate it like and you know, it's it's people gotta get ready. That's not on you. <laughs> yeah. How about you, Lucy? I am very with Brittany in those respects. So I guess I will just say like what I specifically am doing to hopefully, you know, move towards next steps. Um, I am applying for fellowships right now for after I graduate and my project is on alternate responses to policing for folks who are experiencing behavioral and mental health crises. So starting to deconstruct our collective idea of what policing 
should be and what the role of police should be, which in my opinion is nothing. But, you know, why are we asking people who have no training, no specialized training to respond to these situations? And when people are having physical health crises, why do we send specialized ambulances? When to people in mental and behavioral health crises, we send the police who also write parking tickets and arrest people and have guns. And it just doesn't really make any sense. And so, you know, starting to do what we can to chip away at the carceral state and the police state. And that's what gives me hope is the idea that there are more steps to take and that there are people who are supportive of that. And that's what uh, kind of keeps me going. And that's really exciting work. So it's grateful to hear you're working on that. I think working with students gives me hope. I hope that's not a, a, a cliche new professor thing to say. Like, I feel like I like working with students a lot more than working with um actual attorneys, even though I'm still working with actual attorneys, no shade to y'all, but I just feel like maybe there's, maybe there's an opportunity to get at the root a little bit more and, 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 and sort of change things and push the envelope from a little bit more from the source, recognizing all the problems with law, with law schools. I, I personally hated the experience of law school, never really thought I would be back in one full time, but I think it sort of gave me a space to um, be be the change, quote unquote, that I wanted to see in the profession uh, by by starting from that source, um, and I'm excited about them learning about these concepts, their openness to learning about these concepts, and the work that we're getting to do. Um, so I guess that gives me hope. That is where my hope comes from right now. Well, I appreciate appreciate you closing us out on on a more positive note with a with possibilities. But I actually I think just like talking about this like uplifts so many possibilities and like ways we could be. Um, so you know I think there's there's something hopeful I take out of it, even though we do have to be real about how you know awful and how much of a struggle things are as well. Um, but yeah, I really appreciate you both taking the time to be here and talk about this and really hope for more, not just conversations, but like you said, more action. I, obviously it needs to be the next thing. So thank you for all the work that you're doing um, on your end. And, you know, I, I am hopeful that uh, it, will, it will get us there. It will get everyone to make the, take the actions they need to be taking. So thank you so much uh, to you both again. And yeah, really grateful. And uh, thanks for this conversation and hopefully we, not just talk more, but do more. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. This is we hope you enjoyed this episode of The Activist Files, the Center for Constitutional Rights podcast. Just a reminder to subscribe and rate us on iTunes, Spotify, and SoundCloud. And if you want to find out more about our work, visit our website at ccrjustice.org. That's all until next time on The Activist Files.